Grace and peace to you, church and visitors. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm the family pastor here. And uh, I pray that today that you have already encountered by the power of the Holy Spirit the grace of God and the peace of Christ that truly uh, surpasses all understanding. Let us pray this morning. May the words of my mouth in the meditation of our hearts. Be pleasing to your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this morning, we are continuing our Lenten season, our series called At the Cross. We have been journeying with Jesus from the desert towards Jerusalem. Last week, we engaged with Luke chapter 13, verses 31 to 35, and and today we're going to be in Luke chapter 13, so that's your cue if there's a Bible in front of you, if you're someone that likes to grab their Bible, you can go ahead, Luke chapter 13. And last week we dove deep into the determined love of Jesus and felt Jesus weeping as he then and still now does with the world's powers that disregard the king of the universe, the king of our hearts, as we've sung about today. There's a question, I don't know if you've noticed, but Pastor Jeff, I think one of his spiritual gifts is asking really pointed questions that when you hear them, you're like, ooh, I wish he didn't say that. And then a few minutes later, you're like, I'm really grateful he asked that question because it has us reflect on our life with Christ. And last week, he had this question. He said, I say I want to be like Jesus, but does my heart grieve the sinfulness, brokenness, and evil of the world as Jesus does? This is a powerful question, not just for one Sunday, but a question for us to ask throughout the season of Lent. Now, today's text is in Luke chapter 13, like I said, verses 1 to 9. And before we read our text this morning, we must remember how this story is being unfolded for us as God's people. See, the lectionary intentionally had us engage with the end of chapter 13 first. It's like having ice cream first of the meal, and then the main course. I mean, it's delicious, it's wonderful, but why did we do that? Why did we read the end of chapter 13 first, and then today reading about chapter 13 in the beginning? Well, this move reminds us that God is impacted by sin, too. And as Christians, we must remember that the Christian faith, the Christian life, the journey that we're on begins with God not with us. So with that, I hope you hear a word from the Lord, Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, and I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, They were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, 
And he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is a word from our Lord. The theme of this text is repentance. It's kind of difficult not to see that. A theme that's actually central to the gospel according to Luke. We see this in the very beginning in Luke chapter 3. We see that John the Baptist proclaims a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We then see a few chapters later in Luke chapter 5. At Levi's banquet, Jesus proclaims that I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And even a few chapters from where we sit today in Luke chapter 19, we hear in response to Zacchaeus, Jesus declares, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. The underlining premise in these moments is human freedom to choose one's destiny like every movie we've ever seen in our entire life. All of Luke's characters must choose the path of repentance. See, in our text this morning, we have two stories that people bring to Jesus, two present-day local news that provides them a little fear and worry and anxiety a little bit like today in the way that we watch news. These two stories, the news of Pilate sending Roman minions to kill Galileans during sacrificial worship, and the story of the 18 people that were killed during the tower that fell on them. And they both ask the same question with this news update. Do you think that they were worst offenders because this happened to them? What's underlining here is that people are asking Who is at fault? Who is at fault? Maybe this is how we respond to the news today. Who's at fault? Who can we look for? Who are we going to point the sword of our finger towards? Who is at fault? And Jesus answers the same to both of these questions. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Whoa. This seems pretty direct, don't you think? I think it's a pretty direct comment from Jesus. And kind of not answering the question that they asked. Or is it that Jesus knows their hearts so deeply that he's answering the question that they cannot articulate for themselves? Isn't that awesome? We can go to God in prayer, even reading scripture. And we can ask questions. We can try to figure out how we're articulating, how to engage with this world. And God might answer us, not the way that we want, but maybe God's answering us the ways that we can't even articulate our own selves. I'm grateful for that. This form of repetition in this text is for a reason. 
Jesus, once again, is concerned with their heart and lives. So he wants them to repeat, right? He says this to them. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. But the question that we could ask ourselves is, what is Jesus wanting them to repent from? Jesus is wanting them to repent from poor theology. Now, theology is a fancy word. It's kind of fun to say. And sometimes the church has thought about theology as something grand and great. But really, to its finite core, theology is the study and understanding of God. Anyone, however young or old, is someone that is studying or seeking to understand God. You're a theologian. You don't have to go to undergrad or a master's degree or start teaching classes. You're all theologians. You're all hopefully seeking to understand God. Now the question is, what kind of bad theology is Jesus asking them to repent from? Well, it's when some scholars call karma theology. See, back then, they thought that if they followed the law the right way, that there would be blessings. And they thought if you negated the law, there would be curses. Lots and lots of curses. That if you did bad things, you sinned. If you sinned, bad things will happen to you. And if you do good, good things will happen to you. You get the picture? And they're asking, who is at fault? Whose sin produced this horrible act of violence? Because obviously this happened because they deserved it, right? And to be honest, we still have this karma, this this poor, distorted theology of God in today's world, right? We call it the prosperity gospel, right? We give to God and we're blessed back in numerical fashion. And sometimes even individually we embody this poor theology when we try to say something about a people group that's different than us, right? I mean, they're experiencing homelessness, so they must have done something wrong. They must have sinned. Or this idea that, oh, well, this person's addicted because they must have had bad family ethics. We try to point. We try to ask the question, who is at fault? When Jesus is saying to them and to us, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. For us to truly sit with this text, to truly open our hearts to these words that Jesus is saying to us, to me, to you, we must understand what real repentance means for us as followers of Jesus. Now, the New Testament was written, not in English, uh, but actually in Greek, in Koine Greek. And the word repentance in Greek is metanoia. Okay, so... Um, We're going to do a little word study today. Uh, Everyone say with me, on the count of three, metanoia, right? One, two, three. Metanoia, right? You learned some today. Great. Check it off the list. Now you can have your Nazarene map later um, because you've done that. We've learned a word. Metanoia is the Greek for repentance. And this is where we get the word metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. Which... Honestly, the first thing, and I probably should have a a lot better image than this, but the first thing I think of is a caterpillar to a butterfly, right? 
Maybe you have a kid or two, or I've had kids, right? A total transformation. The act of repentance is a complete turning away from former beliefs and actions and faithful acceptance of God's kingdom in the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? We repent from our former actions. We focus on God's kingdom that's centered on the person and life of Jesus. Here's where I think we struggle with repentance. I think for far too long, we that identify as Christians have oversimplified repentance with some grand articulation in some form or fashion saying, I'm sorry to God for the ways that we've broken relationship with God and with others and ourselves. But here's the thing. Repentance is more than words. See, because I don't know if you've ever had kids before or have engaged with kids, but sometimes when kids say they're sorry, they don't actually mean it, right? So it's kind of like when we're living our life and we know that God is behind us, we know that God is proclaiming good news of love and grace and mercy, has invited us into a kingdom that's redeeming all things, and, but we want to do our own thing and we're, we're turning away, we know about God, we're doing our own thing. We're, we're choosing jobs for our own self or where we live or the college that we're in or who we're marrying or what we're watching on TV, whatever it is. And then when we repent, sometimes we'll turn to God and we'll recognize God's presence, his holiness, his beauty, his, his presence that's not far away, that's not in a distance, but is right there ready for us to turn. We say we're sorry. And then I think too many times in our life, we say we're sorry and then we do this sweet dance move where we just back. And we subconsciously do the things that are, we're so comfortable with. And I confess I do this too, right? I, I'm not sitting up here saying that it's perfect. But I think when we do this subconsciously, the unintended consequence is that we start saying we're sorry like this. Right? Like, I'm sorry, God, that I said that. I said those things to my spouse, my partner, my, my co-worker, I'm sorry that I acted that way. And then we turn and we continue to do that. What if repentance was actually not just the words, but the act of turning to God? See, we've been so focused that repentance is turning not just from something, but to someone. To the God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the divine creator who longs to have a relationship with us. I think there are a couple of translations. I don't know if you've ever, you know, read a story in Scripture and you're like, this is really interesting. I, I wonder how other translations articulate it. Well, I think there are a couple of translations that articulate this beautifully. It's the CEB translation says this about Luke chapter 13, verse 3. It says, no, I tell you, but unless you change your hearts and lives, you will die just as they did. Or the message, the paraphrase from Pastor Eugene Peterson says it direct. Not at all. Unless you turn to God, you too will die. Can you imagine if the world got a glimpse of God's people doing just that? Maybe the world is so tired of Christians saying they follow Christ but don't really see it being lived out? What if the world got a glimpse of us as God's people doing this, this honest turning to God, realizing 
I have some faults and failures and I need help. Knowing that when we ask for forgiveness deep within our roots and our hearts, that God is ready and willing to forgive us. Now there are consequences, yes, but God is ready to forgive us. I wonder what the world would think of God's people that were open and honest about that. The church actually, for hundreds of years, has practiced a way for God's people to bring our sin and brokenness to God without it feeling trite or depressing, right? That's like the biggest concern, right? When we repent, is it just trite or depressing? The way we do this, well, the church has done this. And when I mean church, I'm saying the whole church in the whole world, Protestant, Catholic, all of it, the church has practiced this prayer, this corporate act of confession. I think there's um, a slide for that. So I'm not going to pray this prayer, or, or at least I'm going to pray this prayer, but I want us to pray with our eyes open. You know, maybe when you have kids and you ask them to pray, and they're like, especially at food, you know, their eyes are open. I want us to pray together with our eyes open of this prayer. And I want us to see the words, and I want to see us, want us to see the way that repentance is not just words, but with actions and turning towards God. So hear these words as we pray with our eyes open this morning. Let us confess our sins against God and our neighbor. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and in word and in deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. I struggle to articulate my feelings and what God's doing in my life, and so prayers like this are, are true guides for me, and I hope it would be a guide for you. But I want us to point out, I want to point out two things about this prayer. Um, if you can go back to the last slide, the beginning part here. I love as we begin, we declare God's mercifulness, God's mercy. That's how we start, right? So we don't do this thing of repentance with trite and depression, but knowing that God is merciful to us. And that we confess in all capacities, right? Thought which is kind of really scary that God knows all of our thoughts. And our words, our words to our neighbors, our words even to ourselves, and even our actions, our deeds. But then there's this one part that I think is really interesting and challenging, is by what we have done, but, but by what we have left undone. Think about what, what we have left undone. For guests, what does it look like for us to forgive for the things that we have left undone? The conversation that continues to need to be had. Or the undoneness of seeing a person in a broken situation. And what I love, too, is right in the middle of this prayer, it says, we are truly sorry and we humbly repent. See, because it takes great humility to say you're sorry. 
And I love those characters. I'm truly sorry, right? I'm not just saying it so that I can continue to live the life that I'm comfortable with. This prayer offered to God creates a safe and holy space in which we can name and hold our sin before God. Our sin is not the whole story, and remember that, but it is absolutely a part of our story. And as we speak these words together, we are reminded that we're not alone in our sin, but carried by fellow sinners who are brave enough to step into God's merciful light. And that gives me hope and joy. It gives me the ability to learn other fellow sinners that are trying to figure this out, following God every day. This beautiful prayer gives us robust language to use for confession, a, a posture to humble ourselves to God and to each other. And I'll tell you what, this is what the younger generation is looking for. I'm reading a youth ministry book with, uh, with a uh, young adult who's called a ministry. And uh, she shares her favorite quote with me a couple days ago, and it's this. The quote in the book says, This generation is looking for adult leadership that will believe in them, listen to them, understand them, and model being authentic followers of Jesus Christ. What I don't see there is I don't see that the younger generation um, wants more lights or the mist or the concert feeling of emotions for a few hours or a trying-to-be-cool pastor with a cardigan that he wears way too much every Sunday. The younger generation doesn't want another pizza party to eat so much that they throw up later. The younger generation, the future of this church, right? The preschoolers and the kindergartners and the first and fifth graders and the youth of our church that are over there being shaped and formed today. That's a generation that wants people to be with them in an authentic way. And I wonder if one of those ways to be authentic is to share how we're not perfect. How we posture ourselves every single day to God. I remember um, the former chaplain at Eastern Nazarene College. I went to chapel a lot because I knew I needed Jesus a lot when I was in college. And uh, he must have preached 50 times. And then a few years ago, while I was a youth pastor in Kansas City, he came to be our, our speaker for camp. Right? So excited. I'm like, it's going to be awesome. He did a great job. And one of the first nights, he made um, a side comment uh, about um, someone that was handicapped. It wasn't, it wasn't a bad comment, but the next night, he started his service by apologizing. See, because there was a youth worker that was in a wheelchair. And Corey is his name. He began to just weep. As he asked for these teenagers, right? We're a couple days in, so these are like sweaty, gross, not a lot of sleep teenagers at camp in the middle of nowhere in Oklahoma. And he is like weeping because he's apologizing for the side comment that probably hurt his brother in Christ. And he asked for forgiveness with all of these students. And he asked forgiveness for the man that was in a wheelchair. And I will never forget that. And what's so funny is when the students got home, they said, man, 
If this chaplain of a Christian college can confess his challenges and struggles with a bunch of teenagers like us, maybe I can do this Christian thing too. Maybe I can go to God and each other and ask for forgiveness. And what's great about our text is is Jesus is really good of engaging with people, you and I, and and saying, all right, I don't think they get it, so I'm going to tell a story. I'm going to tell a parable. And this is what Jesus does in our text in Luke chapter 13, verses 6 to 9. Now, what we have to remember is a parable is not just a cute story, but it's a story of ordinariness that becomes a vessel which reveals something about God and about the kingdom of God. So this is the parable that Jesus told the people. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, And he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here for three days I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree and I still find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. See, there's a man that has a fig tree not producing. and It's it's been three long years, and he's just done. So done that he goes to the expert, the gardener, and demands for it to be cut down. The man comes to the gardener looking for results from the fig. And even says, why should it be wasting the soil? I mean, that's a, that's a low comment. The tree, however, the fig tree has an advocate in the gardener, the divine gardener, who is willing to produce the special attention it needs in order for it to eventually be productive. The gardener pleads with the owner more time for the tree to bear fruit. And Jesus is our divine gardener, the one who pleads for us, the one that longs for us to bear fruit. And don't we want to bear fruit? Don't we want to bear fruit of the kingdom of God? See, because Lent is this interesting season where we go from winter to spring. And I know some people really like skiing, but I'm ready for it to be spring. I'm ready for it to be warm. I'm ready for the earth to grow again, right? For things to be fruitful again. And Lent is a season of spiritual introspection and discipline. Or as one scholar says it, Lent is a season of of turning our hearts and our habits towards God again. It's a season of humbling ourselves that we need Jesus, our divine gardener, to help us. To reveal to us what things around us don't need to be there anymore. What is in our life right now that is prohibiting our ability to bear fruit? What in our life is prohibiting us to bear fruit? What is distracting us from what God wants to do in us and through us? I'm telling you right now, it's not just that we just shouldn't eat chocolate, which I'll tell you, I definitely shouldn't eat chocolate, but there's other things, there's the reason of the season of Lent. 
And it's just not not going to Starbucks so we can save some money in our bank account. But see, Lent is about looking deep within our hearts and saying, yeah, God, what I'm looking at on TV or my phone, what I'm thinking about other people, the way I'm scheduling my life, maybe this isn't helping me to produce fruit for the kingdom of God. It might even be my attitude toward a people group that just look different to me. And will we allow God to help us remove it from our roots so that we will allow God's manure to saturate our roots? How do we open our lives daily to Jesus, our gardener, who longs to dig around our roots, our hearts, and provide us with holy manure? I've been waiting all morning to say that. (laughs) But really, like, providing us holy manure so that our lives naturally bear fruit for the kingdom of God. And sometimes the working of God's grace is like manure. Absolutely. God's grace is sometimes really stinky. And it's messy. But ultimately, we know that it's nourishing And it's exactly what we need. The question is, do we allow God's grace to work in us? To do the deep work, not just what's seen on the outside on a Sunday morning, but what's deep within our roots of our hearts. Do we attend to those things that God has provided us to shape and form us into God's holy people, set apart for God's kingdom work in the world. A kingdom which is actually healing and redeeming all things for the world. I mean, that's something that we can get behind. John Wesley believed that God finds ways to nurture and mature us into the fullness of love. Literally, God is looking for things for us to nurture us. He called these things means of grace. Right? They were a means in which we could encounter and be shaped and formed by God's grace. These things are scripture, and prayer, worship, fasting, communion, acts of mercy towards others, journey groups, corporate worship, and so much more. See, the thing is, if you have a garden you got to take care of it every single day. If you've got maybe a fig tree that's not producing, we have to do these things consistently, right? We can't expect God to produce fruit in our lives when we pray once a week. Or we read scripture when it's just one little verse on an app and then think that we're okay with that. And we think that that is actually going to shape and form our lives. I wonder... If all of these things all together consistently with a large family of God that looks different than us, that come from different family homes, could shape and form us to be God's people. So this morning as the band comes up to play our theme song for the season of Lent, I want us to take a few minutes all to examine our lives during this Lenten season. So we're almost halfway through. And I don't know about you, but when I'm halfway through a project, I sometimes forget the bigger picture because I'm so tired 
And I can't believe that I'm almost halfway through. And I think this is a perfect place to remember that this season is for us to ask for God's help. To repent. To remove those things, thoughts, and actions that we know are truly killing our roots. Our hearts from the inside out. And as we examine, let us recognize that God longs for us to bear fruit because that is what we are made for. Maybe today is a perfect day to recommit your life to God and to humbly allow God to shape and form you with God's means of grace. See, what's central to the Christian faith is not just that Jesus saves us from sin, but Jesus also saves us for something else bigger than that. What if we began to live in such a way that we're not being led to see God in our small stories, but that our stories are a part of God's grander story? Jesus saves us to bear fruit of the kingdom of God a kingdom which is actively healing and redeeming all things for the sake of the world. So may our holy repentance bear fruit. Amen. So now we are are called, we are commissioned, we are blessed with this benediction. Hear these words. May we go from this place now sent into the world as God's holy people sent out to bear fruit of the kingdom of God and only fruit of the kingdom of God. Amen. Go in peace.